Welcome to the LDS Life Podcast. To contact Kevin Williams, send him an email at kevinw at ldslifepodcast.com. You can also visit his Facebook page at LDS Life Podcast. The last thing that it's doing or, or uh, you know, as well, is it's shoving people into these cities. So the cities are becoming more densely populated. They're, they're growing. They're building up rather building out. And when that happens, uh, people lose their conservative values. They lose their conservative identity, their connection to the land. You know, they, they think different. They act different. They vote different. And you create what I call uh, the Hunger Games syndrome, where you've got the capital city, you know, controlling politically everybody else. And, and the, you know, the power is in that city and the districts are just feeding and funding it. Welcome to the LDS Life Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Williams, the Blind Montana Man. If you want to email us, make a suggestion for the podcast, or give a good old-fashioned commentary, feel free to do so. The email address is kevinw at ldslifepodcast.com. That's kevinw at ldslifepodcast.com. You can also check out the Facebook page at LDS Life Podcast. On this episode of the LDS Life Podcast, I had on gubernatorial candidate for Idaho, Ammon Bundy. Ammon Bundy and I discussed the consumption tax. He wants to get rid of property tax and substitute it with this consumption tax, or as he calls it, eliminate the property and income tax and substitute it with a consumption tax. This is not a user's tax that you may be thinking of, where you might pay 20% of what you buy in a sales tax or some kind of consumer's tax. This is where you would pay a tax on your home or property if you sold it. We also discussed that Idaho currently has 61 to 64% of its land locked up by the federal government. Some of it is legitimate, but a lot of it is not. We discussed that in the podcast along with the housing crisis, population density, And we also discussed COVID as it relates to the state of Idaho and the letter that the LDS Church wrote on August 12th of 2012. I hope you enjoy this podcast. I thoroughly enjoyed preparing it and producing the podcast. Thank you very much for listening to the LDS Life Podcast. It is Thursday, November 4th, 2021. I'm Kevin Williams. This is the Blind Montana Man on the LDS Life Podcast. I know it's been a while since we've done a podcast, but there's a lot of changes going on behind the scenes, changing new RSS feeds, changing to a new podcast provider, all kinds of things. So had to hold off things for a while, but we're back. And by the way, don't forget to check out the new podcast that I launched uh, almost a little over a month ago called Canning Plus 7. That's C-A-N-N-I-N-G, the plus sign, and then 7. Ammon Bundy's my guest today. How are you, Ammon? I'm doing well. How are you doing? Good. I understand. How are things going over there in Idaho with your campaign and such? Well, we're moving. <laughs> we're moving pretty fast over here. We set a pace and, you know, committed to keeping that pace and until we have some results. And that's what we're doing. It's been really good. Well, great. Uh, and by the way, just to educate people, what made you decide to run as a Republican as opposed to an independent? I have a pretty good idea, but why don't you educate the listeners on that? Well, I mean, there hasn't been an independent um, elected here in Idaho. I don't know since when, you know, we've been a, we're pretty much up in state and um, anyway, so, you know, if you want to true shot at becoming 
the governor or another office and Republicans where it's at in Idaho. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I, I do believe that the Republican platform as it's written is a righteous platform um, uh, for the most part. And, um, and so, you know, I decided that it would be uh, worth it best to run as a Republican. And I've, I've never voted any other way. I've always voted Republican. Yeah. What inspired you to run for governor? I heard, uh, I heard you tell the story on the Kevin Miller show, who does a radio show there in Idaho on KIDO. No, this is not an advertisement, just uh, talking here, two people having a conversation. What, but go ahead and tell your story. What inspired you to run for governor? Well, um, as most probably would know at some point or another in the West, anyway, that my family was thrown into prison, mm-hmm. uh, pretty much for just ranching on our ranch that we've been there for 140, I think five or six years now. So five generations since 1877. Anyway, federal government comes in and says that it's not our ranch anymore, that it somehow belongs to them. And there was this dispute. And ultimately, uh, a, uh, they sent 313 or 213 armed federal agents and the people across the country didn't like that. They came and stood with my family and pretty much drove them off. Uh, anyway, they arrested us for that, threw us in prison. And we were there for two years. Uh, never, never was convicted of, of anything. We, we left those two years after two federal trials, after the federal government put um, uh, spending a hundred million dollars trying to prosecute us. We left those prisons without even a misdemeanor, you know, not one charge stuck. Um, but during that time, uh, we spent a lot of time in prison and locked cells, including solitary confinement. And on September 7th, or 1st, 2017, um, so it was on my birthday, actually, in 2017, I'm in solitary confinement, and I'd been in there for months, and a little 10 by 7 concrete box. Um, and I began to feel pretty strongly, um, through the spirit of the Lord that at some time I was going to run for governor and uh, governor of Idaho and um, that I should prepare for that. Um, I wrote it down in my journal that I had to call legal notes so they wouldn't throw my journals away. And I um, even began to feel and understand some of the things that I should do. And um I wrote those things down and uh, kept a record of them and then kind of almost forgot about them until 2020 rolls around. And I see the governor, you know, using his, abusing his authority, locking down, trying to lock down people, forcing them to stay in their homes. Good heavens, who, there's no governor or no person in, in government that has authority to force people to stay in their homes. Um, you know, shut uh, get, arresting people for going to church, uh, deciding what business were essential and what businesses weren't and demanding, requiring by, by the force of, of, um, of the officers that they shut down their businesses, you know, uh, assess, assess when, 
adaptation of travel was put into place, uh, suspension of travel, excuse me. Um, it's early, Kevin, I have to, I have to warn you. I, I stayed up till two o'clock last night with, uh, about a crew of 30 people filming. We're working on a, a short film for the campaign. So, um, I could see already that I'm, uh, mixing up words. So just giving you a fair warning. <laughs> Actually, you're, you're doing fine. Uh, I have no oh, complaint. Your oh. voice is just a little scratchy, but I don't think the average listener would notice. I've noticed because oh. I've heard you a whole bunch. Well, but, so uh, that's, you're doing that, fine. That's basically what, you know, what ins inspired me to run, uh, you know, and then, like I said, I see the governor and then, then I uh, kind of finish that up. Then I started looking at those who were going to run, right, or put their hat. And I thought, are they going to be able to clean this mess up? Are they going to have the fortitude, the knowledge, the strength? Uh, have they? Are they going to compromise? You know. And I and I began to look at all the candidates, and and I I didn't feel confident that that any of them uh, had enough experience and enough uh, understanding of principle and fortitude it hadn't been to the fire enough in their life to stand against what's coming and once you know i once i uh began to see that i said well i think it's time it's time for me to run for governor i want to read something that your wife wrote this was written by the way from uh, ammon's sweetie pie lisa his wife i don't know i suppose you can call her your sweetie pie can't you Sure. That sounds oh, good. Doesn't her personality remind you of the taste of chocolate pie? <laughs> well, she loves chocolate pie. There you go. Okay. That's all we're going to say about that. Let's go ahead and read this here. This man is everything I could have ever wished for as a father to our children and the leader in our home. He is patient and an amazing teacher. Our family's leader, courageous, a very level-headed thinker, and our ultimate supporter. And I swear, there isn't anything that man can't fix. Ammon is our family's rock. He is without a doubt the funnier parent, and he can multitask with the best of them. Ammon is the head of our household, and when he's gone, everything is off. If anyone is in need, you better bet he will be the first to offer a helping hand. At times, we drive each other crazy, as I'm sure most married couples do at, some, at times. But I am so grateful we can still laugh so hard together that we cry. It's those moments when we win. The moment when we're faced with the hardest of life's trials and stick together, constantly seeing the silver lining in the end. When I was a little girl, I asked my Heavenly Father if he would please give me the best man to someday marry and one who would be everything I wanted for our children. God fulfilled his promise and then some. I love that Ammon puts God first and has an abundance love for him. He loves God more than anything. I think that's what I love most about him. If that is truly at the heart of his desires, then I can count on him to always do the right thing. Ammon, my husband, thank you for your example and for being you. We are blessed to call you our own. What do you think of that description? I know you're trying to be humble and all, but what do you think of that description? Uh, well, I guess... 
what I can say is I have in you know an amazing uh, helpmate partner mm -hmm. in this uh, life. I I'm grateful for my wife and you know it really is I can't imagine trying to do the things that we've been doing and going through the things that we've gone through the last you know decade without I can't imagine doing that with with someone who doesn't support someone who won't look at things um outside of just the immediate motion emotion and my wife does that she and she truly knows she's had the experiences and gone through things just like i have we've suffered and and you know had been blessed and anyway we we are truly one um and so you know, I, I can truly rely on her to sustain me and to support me and to, you know, give me strength. And um, anyway, I can't, I couldn't ask for a better uh, person to go through eternity with. Now, is Lisa into politics like you are? Oh, no. Okay. I'm but not she's... into either. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, I want to talk about your campaign plan because I only have, uh, we, we've uh, already spent about 19 minutes here, but let's talk about your tax plan. This is a, a things that I am going to ask uh, questions about because you want to eliminate the property and income tax. You also mentioned that nine states, including Texas, Alaska, Montana, Wyoming, and even Idaho's neighbor, Washington, has no income tax. But yet, here's my question. Those states that you've mentioned, I did a little bit of research. The property taxes, even here in Montana, where I'm at, are awfully high. You also say that you want to get rid of the income tax and do a consumer tax. How much? How would the consumer tax work? I assume it's like a flat sales tax. So let me straighten you out the a little bit. The consumption tax, I mean. Uh, yeah. yeah, go so, ahead. Um, so the income tax, I'm proposing to eliminate it. Uh, property tax, I'm pr proposing to eliminate it, but then replace it with a consumption tax. Yeah. Um, yeah. On the, pro you know, the property tax side. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, we have, you know, we have for the last hundred, little over a hundred years, we have grown government insurmountably. I mean, the size of government is beyond what anybody could ever have imagined a hundred years ago. And it's not that it's needed. In fact, it's actually less needed now than it was back then. And the reason I say that is because we have technology now that keeps our records that, that, that help us to be more efficient yet the size of the government continues to grow and grow and grow. And it's, it's, it's detrimental. It really is. So, uh, one thing that I want everybody to understand is, is that the minimizing the size of government um, is very important. And, and the reason why the government has grown so much is because we funded it. Uh, we've, we've completely give them the reins uh, actually unconstitutionally to directly tax us and there's no end to that. They will continue to tax and tax and tax until they grow so big that 
people won't be able to fund them anymore. And we're actually really close to that nationally, especially. We have to understand, you know, that that the size of government, the way it is now, it's never, you know, never in this country and never in any written history of man has government been so expensive and large uh, as it is here right now in the United States. And that goes for Idaho. So let's not think that we can't minimize that, downsize that, make it much, much smaller, much, much less expensive, that somehow, you know, we're going to lose some really, really great things. In fact, it's just opposite. So I don't plan on replacing income tax. I plan on minimizing government size of government. Okay, so you're not going to get rid of it entirely. You, but I guess you. Well, no, I'm planning on getting rid of income tax, income tax entirely. Okay, now, but you're going to uh, replace it with a consumption tax. No, I'm going to replace property tax with consumption tax. Okay, I'm eliminating income tax, and I am not replacing it with anything other than smaller government consumption. Um, or property tax, I'm going to replace with, with uh, a consumption tax. Um, mm-hmm. And I'll explain that. Um, now, pro- reason, reason why is because property tax, the way it is right now, is an immoral tax. Uh, makes it so you never own your home. Uh, makes it so that the state can take your home because you get in a financial uh, situation where you can't pay the taxes. And in fact, in the 30s, uh, more people lost their home uh, you know, during the depression, more people lost their homes to the state than they did to the, to the um, banks uh, because, and, and last of all, uh, property tax is a Marxist theory idea. It, and it was something that wasn't implemented until, you know, a uh, little before the great depression in the early 1900s. And so this isn't how, this is not how we paid for government in our country. This is something fairly new over the last, you know, hundred year years, and so I plan on eliminating it and replacing it with a consumption tax. And the consumption tax will be based upon the sale of the property, and it will pay for the needs of government, uh, the the proper functions of government, such as the sheriff. Um, school, you know, the different things that the counties and the minimal things that the state needs. And so, Oh, okay. That's what, that's what I'm uh, planning on doing with, uh, with property tax. Um, And I, I've covered this issue quite a bit um, on my website at votebundy.com. And um, yeah, we have to make sure that our private property is secured and that the state can't take it. So let me ask you this, though, and I don't, I don't want to make this the whole podcast, but I have a lot of questions, so bear with me here. Um, the consumption tax, would that be taxed every time you make a house payment, a mortgage payment, and then what would you do? Because not everybody owns property. I'll get to that in a while, although not everybody owns property. There's a lot of renters out there. What would you do then? Would you, And how much percentage would go to that tax? So the tax would be due at the time of the, of the sell. So when a property is sold, then the tax would be due. And we're talking about, you know, anywhere from three to 5% of the, the, the sell of the property. It would be due. However, 
it could be rolled into the mortgage if, if they chose, if, if people just didn't want to pay. So let's take like a $400,000 home. Mm-hmm. That's about average home in Idaho right now across the state of Idaho. Um, that would be, let's say it's, let's go to the high side and say 5%. Well, that would be $20,000 that would be due at the time of the sale of the, of the home. They could roll it into the mortgage and just, you know, then it would be, you know, they would pay the, the mortgage back just like they normally do. But the difference is, is as soon as the mortgage is paid off, then the, um, then there's no more taxes. And you might ask, well, is that uh, sufficient? And we've done the math. It's very very specific. Um, I could give you, so let me just give you that same $400,000 home right now is bringing the, it's about two to $3,000 a year that it brings in revenue for the, for the county and the state. And so you're talking about over 30 year period, because that's about the length of a average mortgage, but a 30 year period, you're talking about 60 to $90,000 of revenue it brings into the uh, county and the state. Well, if you replace it with a consumption tax with that same $400,000 home, um, every time it, you know, it's sold, it would be $20,000 that would go to the state. Well, the average home is sold three to five times in Idaho. The average home is sold three to five times, which would bring revenue from uh, $60,000 to $120,000 to the county and the state. Um, And that could be rolled into the mortgage. Um, and so it's not a burden, you know, most people impact their taxes anyway, where they pay it monthly. Uh, uh, not everybody does, but a good amount of people do that. So that would definitely be an option if they chose. So you're, so, you're saying somebody could do, let's say a 5%, pay, <laughs> let's say the mortgage is 400,000 and then they could add 5% onto that each month uh, to roll it in. Or how would that all work? Oh, it's due at the time so you just put it into the loan okay right yeah it would just be part of the loan then your payment is what it is and when you pay off your home the state already has their money it's already paid it was paid years and years before you pay off the local mortgage okay so you're not okay i apologize i when i've read the thing uh your keep idaho idaho plan which by the way you yes you can go to votebundy.com download that on a p uh, it's a pdf file i have it as do plenty of others um yeah because i've heard this idea proposed and i've heard okay well we're going to get rid of all the income tax we're going to do a national sales tax of 20 percent or whatever but you're this is just talking about property taxes correct or a consumption tax re- no consumption yeah. tax replacing the property tax correct that's correct so that we can actually own our owner property owner okay so there's no there's no statewide flat sales tax or anything like that no no okay and you're not worried about already is a there already is a statewide you know or there already is sales tax in place there is that that's a whole nother topic but this is a consumption tax uh that becomes due at the at the at the point of sale or really the point of purchase which you know same thing and, uh, and it, you know, the, the amount of the tax could be rolled into the mortgage or the person could just pay it off. So, you know, when I sell a $400,000 home, then I've got to 
$20,000 tax bill that's due, I can roll that into the mortgage. So my mortgage ends up being $420,000 or I could just pay the $20,000 and then pay the mortgage off. But either way, I'm, when I'm done paying the mortgage, my home is mine. It doesn't belong to the bank and it doesn't belong to the state. So you could pay the 20,000 long before your home is sold then if you wanted to. Yeah. Okay. Now, uh, well, before your home is paid off. Yeah. So do you think, and again, I want to get to other issues, but this is a real issue here that I want to learn about. Do you think that would decrease inflation in Idaho? Do you think that would provide the economy? And obviously you're not worried about, because I know a ton and maybe it's just the crowd I hang out with. I know a ton of renters out there, people that rent apartments and such, um, that you think it would help them in the long run. You think it would decrease, decrease inflation in Idaho. It's not going to increase. Or I don't think. Well, I meant to say decrease. I don't think it's going to affect the inflation because that's not the reason why the inflation is out there. Um, This is just a way, but I, but it will strengthen property ownership. It will encourage people. Um, And of course, you know, the renters right now, uh, they don't pay property tax. The owner of the property, the owner of the property pays property tax. So none of that's going to change. What it will do is it, it will make it so that people in Idaho actually own their property. Yeah. Um, And it's definitely true. You know, let's just take an iPhone. You buy an iPhone, you're paying taxes on it, especially if you do it like most people do. They buy the iPhone and make monthly payments. I personally think is ridiculous, but a lot of people do that. So the the iPhone's not truly yours until you paid the taxes and everything. You're paying tax on it, taxes on everything. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, there's a, quote out there the power to tax is power to destroy i mean right now in idaho every every day uh homes are being taken away from property owners and Mm -hmm. we're talking about property owners that have the mortgage paid and because they can't afford the you know especially the elderly or someone gets disabled or someone has you know a, a job loss that lasts a lot longer than they plan and they can't pay their taxes they can't pay their property tax yeah. And it doesn't matter if the home is purchased or not. Um, and that we cannot allow that. We must strengthen property tax or property rights in Idaho. We must make them very, very strong because if you remember, and you, you know, I think you know this, but the, the very crux of communism and socialism, which are the same thing, mm-hmm. is the abolition of private property. In fact, wasn't it yes, Karl it Marx? It wasn't Karl Marx that said that communism can be summed up into one sentence, the abolition of private property. And so if we're to be more free and if we're to secure freedom and liberty, then we need to make sure that it's done right. And one of those things is making sure that private property, property is secure and eliminating the state's claim to your property is very important because it, it, it can be used against us and has been used against the people. And we need to be able to own our property and have no question. That is the American dream. People came from all over the world, you know, in the, in the 1800s, because it was, America was the only place that you can actually own your own property, um, that you actually owned it, not some king or lord. And you were just some, you know, a privileged person to be on the, 
on the on the land. Mm-hmm. America different. And what we've done is we've gone back to that principle that somehow we're just a privileged person to be on the state's land, uh, you know, living a little bit. And that's not that's not freedom. And that's not the way we secure liberty. Yeah. Well, just real quick. And then we're going to move on to other issues. What would you do about the sales tax? Would you get rid of that? Would you keep it? What would you do? I think I think that, again, sales tax is a type of consumption tax. And so mm-hmm. You know, if you're going to tax, it's one of the moral ways to do it. But yeah. I think we need to be more specific. I think uh, like a grocery tax probably ought to be eliminated in, in Idaho. Um, gro- grocery sales tax. Um, yeah. Um, I uh, and actually, you know, I, uh, you know, just overall it needs to be re- reviewed. We need to, you know, downsize the size of government. There's also like people don't understand, like people say, well, we have to tax so for our schools. Well, did, did you know that that was never the design to have these schools and tax the people directly to pay for the, the public schools? That's where, that's why we had these uh, school lands. Every, every what, 10th section or something like that in Idaho is broke up. So that every 10th section, that's 640 acres, um, was supposed to pay for schools. And we still have those acres out there uh, most of them, uh, they're available for the state to generate revenue so that they can pay for the schools. It was never supposed to go down into the people's pocketbook and just extract them, you know, for uh, so that the state can, you know, become this huge, huge monopoly in the people's lives. That's never was the design. Okay. Well, thank you for clarifying that. I should have looked at the website. A little bit more. I was just so busy taking notes on the uh, Keep Idaho, Idaho. When I thought saw this consumption tax, I thought, oh, gosh, I've heard this over and over and over and over again. I don't know how it's going to work. So thank you for setting me straight on that. I, I do appreciate that. No uh, let's go on to the next topic, though. Let's talk about land. 61% of Idaho's land is owned by the Bureau of Land Management or some government entity. I did not know it was that high. I knew it was high, but not that high. Um, what would you do to, uh, what do you think of the idea of state parks? We have Ponderosa State Park and McCall. I'm not sure what other state parks are out there. The only reason I know about Ponderosa is because I've been there. It's very nice, especially when you go out on the dock, it's carpet, or at least it was back in the early 90s. Uh, what do you think of state parks and how would we get rid of the federal land? Let's talk about that. Yeah. So, you know, it, it's upwards to 63% federally okay. controlled. Um, I, you know, I safely said 61 because people don't get confused about military bases and so forth. Cause there is some constitution, oh, yeah. there's some, some constitutionally federally controlled land in Idaho. And that, that, that is not, issue that we have it's the unconstitutionally federally controlled land in idaho that needs to be put back into the people's hands to use to benefit to enjoy uh and all of that so yeah uh and the federal government just simply does not have authority uh to control the lands in idaho they don't there is no constitutional authority and i don't care how much you like your national parks there is no authority it was all done by executive order. It was all done through a, a, you know, a little here and a little there and take a little here and take a little there until 
you know, until it become this huge kind of almost deception thing that went on for land grab. Um, so yeah, Idaho can't even pay its own bills right now. We re- we rely on the federal government to uh, give us taxes in order to pay our own bills. Why? Because 63% of our land and 72% of our subsurface mineral rights are being controlled by the federal government. And we have to take our land back. We simply do. Uh, that's it. Uh, land equals wealth. Uh, everything that we benefit from, all our wealth comes from the earth, all of it. It's either connected with, you know, with our labor and resources, um, but all of it basically comes from the earth. So I, I explain it like this, Kevin, that it's like having a bank account and you've got a million dollars in it, but $630,000 of it you can't use because somebody else is saying, well, that they're controlling it. And that's what it's like in Idaho. Um, problem is it also there's, there's lots of problems, but it, it's causing our, um, our affordable housing crisis. That's what it's causing it. People might, what, what does federal land have to do with it? Well, supply and demand. Right now, we're fighting over 37% of the land base in Idaho. Um, uh, 36, you know, 36, 37, 30, I don't know, there's like right in there. And, uh, and we don't have enough supply for land. And yet, we have three, uh, 32 million acres that is available primarily, you know, for use of, of, you know, housing, all kinds of things um, that the federal government is controlling 32 million acres. And, uh, and then what are we doing, you know, in order to try to put enough supply to keep our housing down, the housing costs down or to keep it reasonable, we're building on our agricultural land. Well, Idaho's number one industry is agriculture. So we're destroying our number one industry because why? Because the federal government's controlling 63, 64% uh, of our land here in Idaho. And uh, uh, the last thing that it's doing or, or uh, you know, as well, is it's shoving people into these cities. So the cities are becoming more densely populated. They're, they're growing, they're building up rather than building out. And when that happens, uh, people lose their conservative values. They lose their conservative identity, their connection to the land. You know, they, they think different. They act different. They vote different. And you create what I call uh, the Hunger Games syndrome, where you've got the capital city, you know, controlling politically everybody else. And, and the, you know, the power is in that city. And the districts are just feeding and funding it. And uh, that's what we're about ready to create here with Boise. And it all is because the federal government is controlling our lands and resources. So the federal uh, affordable housing crisis to be caused because of that. We're destroying our number one industry right by growing our building on our agricultural land. And we're creating these dense cities that eventually eventually will uh, control the, the state politically and be much like Portland does to Oregon, Seattle does to Washington. Many of the big cities in California do. Uh, Las Vegas does to Nevada, Colorado, or uh, uh, Denver does to Colorado, uh, so on and so forth. So that's why, among other things, you know, just the fact that it's unconstitutional, uh, why we must get our lands back. And yeah, I think there's definitely need 
just to answer your question directly, there's definitely need and a desire to create state parks uh, to preserve uh, much of this multiple use land for, um, for you know, uh, hunting, hiking, fishing, uh, camping, uh, right, right beside, you know, grazing, logging, uh, mining. Uh, those have always been worked well, all in the same area. And uh, we definitely need to, you know, designate a good part of this 32 million acres that the federal government's controlling in Idaho uh, to, you know, multiple use uh, uh, recreation and enjoyment, that type of stuff. How would you designate, you know, the, out of the 32 million acres, if we ever got that back, how would you designate what belongs to the state of Idaho in terms of state parks What's going to go to the private sector? How would you designate all that? Well, there, there's an effort there. I mean, I think we just identify more of the, again, we're talking about multiple use. Um, uh, you know, the forest areas, they're, they're fairly defined. Um, we have our lakes and our waterways. Uh, they're, you know, pretty uh, clear. And I think that's the direction we would go. Or we would just say, okay, look, these are good areas around these cities, around these towns uh, to develop. Let's, let's make those available to the people uh, through some type of public disposal uh, auction or something to that effect um, and make those available and just keep everything else as, um, you know, multiple use in Idaho. And, um, and then as we grow, we just can kind of keep following that pattern with the idea that certain areas will always be for for hunting hiking fishing logging grazing mining uh you know camping uh you know for access to the public to enjoy and to to use now you say in your plan and by the way i want to get to something else but you say in your plan that idaho has gold mines are you talking about the gold mines i think what you're talking about if i'm not mistaken is the mines in Mackie, idaho correct or near there well I yeah, but I might, you know, be saying that Idaho is a gold mine. The whole thing is full, rich of natural resources. I mean, we've got natural gas, we've got, you know, timber, we've got good water, we've got, you know, lots of different minerals. Uh, you know, I live in uh, in the Gem State. I live in Gem County. The Gem, uh, you know, are, and I live in the Gem State and in Gem County. Um, we've got, like here, we've got some of the best white sand for glass um, than anybody, almost anybody in the world. Um, uh, you know, we need to use this. We need to use it responsibly, uh, but it needs to be the people that benefit from it, not the state. You know, the state is there to protect the people's right to trade, to live, to be free. The state is not there to become a competition and a, and a, and a, a monopoly over the people. And let's not forget that. And most of that protection is done very well at a local level, at a county level. And, and we, you know, we just don't need this huge federal government. We just don't need it. Uh, they're there to be a national defense. And we don't need a huge state government. Uh, and if we take care of it locally, we do it, you know, very efficiently. And we do it without, primarily without abusing the people. And if there is abuse, then the local people can take care of that through, elections and and you know and it, it ways to take care of it locally well Evan, i don't know if you know this you probably do do you remember 
I know that uh, you were probably not into politics at that point, but do you remember in 1994, Helen Chenoweth ran for Congresswoman of Idaho and actually won? I was shocked. I was 14 at the time. Larry LaRocco was well-liked. Do you remember any of that? I don't. I don't remember. Well, you may know this, and I, I can't remember the law off the top of my head, but Helen Chenoweth kept running on the idea or kept running on the fact that Apparently, Idaho is not supposed to create any wilderness without, I can't remember, without the approval of citizens or without legislation. Yeah, she's Apparently, talking. Oh, go ahead. It's Article 1817 of the Constitution. Um, it prohibits the federal government, you know, from uh, coming into the state and taking over mass amounts of, of land. Um, they, you know, if the, if the federal government needs some land to fulfill its authorized purposes, its enumerated purposes in the state, such as like a military base, mm -hmm. then Article 1817, which is the enclave clause, um, provides that. But first they have to come in and they have to identify the land they need and the purpose. They have to get the state, the state to pass it, to the legislatures to approve it. Uh, so they have to pass it through the legislature and then they have to pay for it. Uh, those are the rules. Uh, if the federal government wants to have, you know, any type of property in the state, those are the rules. And they've just completely forgotten that uh, about right after World War II, World War II, the federal government stopped following that process. They just started like taking it and claiming it. And the states just let them do it. And that's why we're where we're at now. And uh, so, yeah, she's she was probably running on. Uh, sounds pretty like for sure that she was running on uh, the enclave clause. Well, she cited something that was passed in 1978, though. I, I don't know. I don't have. I've just got reminded of this during this conversation. I apologize. I can't look up the quote as we're talking right now, but she kept running off that. And then uh, Frank Church, I guess, was notorious for about almost locking up the whole entire state of Idaho, from what I had heard in those conversations back in 1994. So I wondered if you knew any of that information. I haven't. I had to look into it. Sounds sounds uh, intriguing. Yes, it does. Um, okay, let's talk about criminal uh, criminal justice, or specifically laws. You want to instate restitution. Uh, in the state of Idaho. So in other words, if someone stole a car from me, they would have to give it back. What if that person took the car to Mexico, though, or some state far away or Canada? I have no way of getting that car back. You say that, well, okay, they can give you the money. How are we going to track down that criminal? Uh, if that criminal's smart, they're not going to carry a GPS or anything, or at least to disable it from the car or something. And then what if this is a repeated offender that's doing this over and over and over? How do you take care of that? Well, so first of all, you know, we've actually been fairly good about catching people, perpetrators in, in this country, you know, in this country, in the state. So that's a whole nother issue of, you know, how you catch them, but, uh, and what, you know, that's a whole nother, you know, set of skills and, and challenges that we've always had. That's never, you know, that's never changed. What I'm proposing though, is basically we need to identify truly what is a crime because right now our courts and our prisons and our jails are all clear full of people who did no harm to nobody that took nothing from anybody, you know, cause we have all these, 
uh, preemptive laws in place that we think are keeping us safe. And really what they're doing is, is they're costing us a tremendous amount of money and destroying, you know, hundreds of thousands, millions of lives. And it's not true justice. It's not true uh, crime. And so I'm, and, and it's not what the Lord set forth. It's not what this country was based upon. And I'll give you some facts here. You know, you think, well, wait a minute. You know, we've done this for how many years? No. Did you know that the prison of uh, a Bureau of Prisons uh, was not even established until the 1940s? No. You know, 1940s. So what did we do before then? We know where were we putting all these prisoners? Well, guess what? We didn't have all these prisoners. Why? Because our justice system was based upon restitution, meaning if someone stole something, then and they were caught and tried and found guilty, then the perpetrator would be required to restore the victim back its damages, and not, not just the you know not just the if it was a vehicle, um, it would be yeah the vehicle the cost of the vehicle or the vehicle itself uh, plus the damages that it caused by not having. And these restitution laws are God's laws. They're well established in the Bible. Um, they worked and have worked in any society that has used them. And this, I, this, what we're running now is what we call preemptive law. Um, and it's not even uh, based upon justice or law at all. Um, and there's no end to it. it you know, it, there's no limit for the state when you're, when you're running on preemptive law. Uh, the answer is, is to restore our justice system back to a system of restitution, not a system of incarceration. So what is a perpetrator doing? Well, right now, let's just use this. Let's just go through the scenario right now. If uh, let's say someone stole my, my, my phone, my cell phone, my smartphone, and they're caught. Um, and in fact, I've had this happen to me, uh, this, this very, scenario happened to me they're caught and the phone was identified that it was mine and so forth and then uh right now the state will take the phone as evidence you don't get it back you may never get it back and that's the reality i've had that happen to me twice now uh so now you don't get the it back they put the person in jail um they stay in jail typically or you know or on probation some type of you know, either jail or pro probation until they have a trial or until they get them to plea. Most of the time they'll plea uh, guilty. Um, so you never really get a trial. Uh, so they plea guilty and then the state, uh, you know, punishes them, puts them in jail for, you know, six months or fines them and the victim gets nothing. The victim doesn't even get their phone back. And it's completely opposite of justice. Um, so we have to, we have to, we have to repair this and what it better is a way to, uh, rehabilitate a perpetrator, a criminal, than to require them to go through the effort that the victim had to go through in order to obtain that product, that, that thing I'm talking about, you know, theft. Um, now there's other, there's other crimes too, that require restitution. Um, you know, there's assault and battery and there's all these other things uh, and there's remedies, clear remedies of what they need to do to um, to make a person whole. 
And then also we have to implement capital punishment. There is no justice system that is just without capital punishment. Um, because this idea of putting people in prison for, you know, 20, 30, 40, 50 years until they die, that's not justice. That's actually injustice because it's very, very expensive uh, to uh, incarcerate a person. We're talking about thirty to forty thousand dollars a year, and that's a. And then you're when you multiply that by you know hundreds of thousands of people in the state, that's a huge, huge tax burden upon the upon the 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 people. So you're basically victimizing them again. Um, now let me just give you a little bit of facts here, Kevin. Uh, so the United States incarcerates more people. In, in this country than any other country by three times. And Idaho incarcerates more people uh, in, in, in this state than any other state in the union per capita. So we are literally putting more people in prison than anywhere else in the world. And incarceration, systems of incarceration do not work. Systems of restitution do. And we must get back to that so that we can truly have justice, not empower the state uh, to, you know, hurt us through preemptive law and get back to, you know, uh, living and rehabilitating the perpetrator. And then the perpetrator moves on. Uh, he's not a second class or third class citizen because he made a mistake. He gets to move on and be free. What happens if the perpetrator keeps repeating the crime, though? Because there are going to be those that keep repeating it, trying to get away with it. What do you do to those people? They're, they're required to restore the uh, restore uh, the victim. Why, why at would some it be point, would you incarcerate them because they no. do it over and over and over or no. what? That justice, justice is making the wrong right. That is what justice is, right? Justice is making the wrong right. Okay. And do you yes. think that a perpetrator, do you think that a perpetrator is going to keep, uh, you know, our, our criminal is going to keep stealing things if they're just required to work to pay it back? Um, it's going to be the best deterrent that we can have, and that's what that's why it works so well. That's why systems of restitution work so well, because it it rehabilitates the person, and it's a huge deterrent for crime. Right now, we have a 56% uh, 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 crime return to crime rate. And it's like, you know, 43 or something percent uh, reincarceration rate. So right now, the system is not working. It's not working. They go out. In fact, what happens is, is you put people in jail or prison and they end up being an institution for criminals uh, where they learn how to do crime. They learn, they find their crime buddies. They they have a whole nother family now. They get it. And that's exactly what happens. I spent my time in there. I know what goes on in that. That you go, you know, you can have this young person who made a mistake and they, they get it thrown in there. They're in there for four or five years and they come out a full-fledged cr criminal. And it's just not what we want here. We do not want, uh, uh, you know, institutions teaching people how to, how to, uh, do crime, separating from their families and not restoring the victim back uh, its damages and making no way for the perpetrator to be whole again, to repent. And so 
Uh, we, it, it's a, it's a wicked system. It's a terrible system and it's, it's spelled on every level and it needs to be replaced back to what we started from, which is a system of restitution, not a system of incarceration. And we had this up until the 1840s, you said, in, in our, in our country. No, it was more, it was, it was more, you know, the turn of, you know, 1900s right then, you know, we didn't, we didn't have a, a Bureau of Prison until 1940s. Uh, oh, okay. So, yeah, we went. I mean, it hasn't even been a hundred years. And and what started it? You know, it started off at the you know prohibition that created the FBI. That was in the nineteen, um, uh, what was thirteen or something like that. It created the FBI. Then they, uh, you know, uh, abolished the prohibition on alcohol. The FBI continued. Uh, you know, and it has to justify itself, it has to justify existence. And then pretty soon we got into drugs, uh, you know, um, making different drugs, marijuana and others, illegal pro prohibition on drugs. And, and then that created this huge, you know, surge in law enforcement and in criminals, you know, quote unquote criminals. Uh, so then they had to have a place for them. Uh, and they started to build these big prisons. And uh, it's just, you know, it's just completely contrary to liberty. Okay, so uh, let's bring, oh, I want to go back to land really, really quick. Uh, something I'd forgotten to mention, I did not know we have a seaport in Idaho in Lewiston that connects. How does, uh, I'm going to sound stupid here. How does Idaho have a seaport if there's no ocean in Idaho? Explain that because I did not know that. Well, you got a very huge river flowing directly from Idaho to the ocean. And with some development, it would take some development. Uh, uh, there's a, a very strong possibility that Idaho, Idaho can have a seaport in Lewiston. And uh, it's already, you know, worthy for some of the smaller, uh, you know, bear, uh, ship uh, crate bearing ships to come and go. But uh, for the great big ones, it would need some dredging and some development, but we could we could uh, possibly have a, an actual in, import uh, right here in Idaho. Uh, imagine, imagine that what that would do for us. Imagine, especially right now, if that was developed, <laughs> it would be the furthest in, inland seaport, uh, you know, in the Western United States. It all comes together right there in Lewiston, Idaho. Um, let's talk about COVID real fast. Um, COVID, yes, uh, Governor Little locked down the state for a few months, then he opened it up, and a lot of businesses had mass mandates because they were being bossed around by the big corporations. You want to end cronyism, and you want to make it possible for people to have Ivy Mectrum and hydroxychloroquine anything else you want to add to this um well there's there's a heck you know you, you just open up a can of worms and we've got a governor who thinks that he could put the state of the people of idaho in lockdown where where they have to have his permission to come out of their homes that's what the order is um where businesses have to have his permission in order to do business where we have to have uh, his permission identification in order to travel um, where we can't go to church. Um, that's what he did. 
And, and in fact, we are still under that order today. And just because he's becoming, he's being a good, you know, good governor and allowing us to do these things. That's not the way Liberty works. No, nope. that's not freedom works. It's just all the rights are ours. The governor's responsibility is to protect, you know, our, our Liberty and not by taking it. And so, um, he is completely, in a, you know, acting inappropriate in the role in which he has been entrusted with as governor. And, uh, and we must understand that. And also it puts us in extreme uh, danger uh, because he's, he's held us in this uh, emergency order status. Now, why has he done this? Very clear. He's done it for money, for federal, for federal money. Um, and I'll give you a couple of dates on March 13th is when he put us in a state of emergency in Idaho. Well, that was the same day that President Trump announced $50 billion is going to the states, but only the states that are in emergency. Well, on the governor's own website, uh, it, it reports that we only had one confirmed COVID case in Idaho, in all of Idaho. Well, actually, it was unconfirmed COVID case, one unconfirmed COVID case in Idaho on March 13th, and he put us in a state of emergency. And the reason he did that, so he qualified for massive federal funds. Then on March 25th, he put us in emergent, uh, extreme state of emergency. And that was the same day that President Trump, Nancy, Nancy Pelosi, you know, Congress uh, decided that they would release $2 trillion of federal funds for the states that are in extreme state of emergency. Uh, Governor Little has received $18 billion now that has gone from the federal government to the office of the governor, not to the legislature. See, the legislature is supposed to determine how public funds are spent here in Idaho. But he made it so that these funds went directly from the federal government to the office of the governor. And then he put together a little committee in using Executive Order 202007, where he says that this committee serves at the pleasure of the governor and that together out of the office of the governor, they decide where this $18 billion from the federal government is spent and more is coming. And so he did it for money. He did not do it because we were in an extreme state. Never at one time has Idaho ever been in pandemic status. Um, you know, even with uh, an increase of people coming in and uh, uh, an increase of death, um, there has never been anything that would warrant any type of pandemic in Idaho, uh, emergency status, that type of stuff. Nothing. He did it for money, plain and clear. And we should boot him, at, boot him out of office because he's infringed upon the rights of the people, further indebted in debt. Uh, the United States of America and tried to enrich himself and his office and him and his buddies, uh, you know, which is kind of typical of what's been happening in Idaho. Um, and that's just, that's just it straight up uh, as clear as I can be, Kevin. Yeah. I, since this is an LDS life podcast, I have to ask you because people are going to wonder, what do you think of uh, the church sending that letter on August 12th, which I did interview Sam Bushman. For those of you listening, go back and listen to that. I'm not going to read the whole letter here. Go listen to August 12th. What do you think of the letter the church sent out, though, encouraging people to get vaccinated, uh, wear masks, where public social distancing is not 
uh, is not, it cannot be done. By the way, here in Montana, for the record, in my ward, hardly any of us wear masks. So go figure. But what do you think of that letter? Because I think it's going to be very divisive and already is divisive in the church, causing more harm than good. What's your opinion? Yeah, well, I mean, I have seen and said for some time now that the you know church is divided. Uh, even the leadership is divided. They, they, of course, want to look unified, and, and anybody does who's in any type of leadership in an institution wants to, you know, be unified, unified. But the world is divided, and it's much greater division than, than what the uh, elitists, if you will, or those kind of in power want to come off, you know. Uh, and so, and I, and, and the church is no different. The church is very divided. The members of the church are very divided on this. I mean, statistically, it's almost right in the middle, 50-50. And, um, you know, I, it's constantly, uh, you know, I guess sad, saddening, even, even a little bit discouraging that the church won't stand or hasn't stood publicly for liberty. And I don't know the reasons why. I just, I don't understand oh, it. Oh, I exactly. can tell you. Simple. 501c3. Simple. Well, yeah, they don't want to get I, that taken away. I, yeah, right. I understand that. I mean, but, I mean, are we the Lord's Church or are we the United States government church? Um, Good point. I, you know, that, uh, what are we? Are we beholden to a 5013c so that we can continue our influence and power in the world? Or are we going to stand for truth? Um you know, that, that to me is a huge question. And, uh, you know, and people need to understand that, you know, I love the church. I have fought for the church. I've been a faithful member of the church. I've served, you know, people in the church and in the church in many different capacities, uh, on a, you know, stake level, ward level, uh, in any, and just with our family and, and loving and serving each other. It's not about not loving the church. This is not about this. You know, this is about truth. This is about liberty. This is about doing the right thing at the right time so that people understand uh, what, you know, what is important and what is truth. And, you know, and I think that's the reason why, why it's so divided right now. In my heart, I know what is true. I know what it feels like to know, to understand truth. I have followed it my entire life. That's what you know, that's what guided me to have a testimony of the Lord when I was a young man. That's what guided me through my life. That's what guided me on a mission. That's what guided me to my wife. That's why I know the Book of Mormon is true. That's why I know the Lord Jesus Christ is our Lord and Savior and the creator of this world. Uh, that's why I know the church and the truth was restored. And now that same understanding, those same uh that knowledge, that light, and that, uh, you know, that connection between my heart and my mind, that same uh, truth speaks to these topics. And these masks and these vaccinations and these things are not good. They're elements of deception. They are. And I don't know exactly how to understand it when it comes to the church's position and what they're doing. I just know what my mind and my heart tell me. And I know it's the same thing that has told me that the Book of Mormon is a true, uh, you know, record. 
that the Lord is our Savior. It's the same spirit and 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 understanding of that I was supposed to marry my beautiful wife uh, and do many things. It's the same spirit that's guided me through business, that's given me any success in life. Uh, and I'm not going to turn away from that. I'm going to speak it as loud as I can without, you know, without um, over being overbearing. And I'm going to stay true to that uh, because I trust that. I and this other ask... stuff. Oh, go ahead. I say this other stuff. I just don't. I just don't know, and I'm not going to trust it. Well, I have to ask, and I, I. I am reluctant to ask you, but people are going to wonder, and this is an LDS Live podcast. Are you still tithe payer and do you still go to church? Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. When I was in prison, but we still, you know, we've always, uh, you know, been faithful members serving. Uh, yeah, uh, absolutely. Okay. No, I just had somebody's going to ask, why didn't you ask that question? Okay. You know, and it's hard when you when you see things like this happening and then pushing things that you just don't feel right. Sure. You know? It's hard for but me. It's hard, but I I I still have, you know, a hope and a and a faith. And I still look, I mean, the church has been a great blessing to my life and many, many others. I mean, just every morning my family gets up and we read scriptures. Well, guess what? I wouldn't have that compilation of scriptures if it wasn't for the church. My kids yeah. love to go and watch, you know, uh, videos of, of Christ and, and of the Book of Mormon and all of the different, you know, we wouldn't have that if it wasn't for the church. We wouldn't have a great place to go worship and to, you know, unify and, and come together if it wasn't for the church. Like we have to value those things, right? Yes. Uh, but it's when... It's when those things are starting to be used to actually deteriorate, you know, belief, faith, freedom. Uh, that's when it becomes hard. Uh, and unfortunately, every institution that has been known to man has deteriorated in time. Um, anyway. Well, I want to ask you one more question that I know you're busy. You probably have a bunch going on. I apologize for keeping you over time. We just have so much to talk about. There's more I want to get into, but I, we won't do it today. But President Benson said, supposedly, and I don't know if it's true, but according to a YouTube video that I saw back in 2019, President Benson supposedly got into a conversation with somebody and this other person related. He said... Uh, th this guy's father said, uh, President Benson, you're talking about the Illuminati. You're talking about government conspiracies at the pulpit. You're recommending a non call it a conspiracy by Gary Allen. And he went on and on and on. And this guy said, aren't you a little worried that you're going to get killed or something? And President Benson said, I'm not worried about Washington, D.C. I am worried about people at church headquarters. Do you think that this is what he was talking about? If, in fact, he actually said that. I don't know if it's true. It's just hearsay. But What's your opinion, though? Oh, I think uh, using a YouTube video as a reference is probably not the wisest thing to do, especially to comment on. Oh, you know, I, I, yeah, I'm just saying if, if this I, is true, though. I, uh, I know I, you know, but uh, there's a lot of what ifs. I, I mean, I, uh, I mean, because that would be you'd be talking about something pretty serious. I think you better make we better make sure that our 
reference is true and, and solid. Um, you know, I, you know, I don't know. I do know that there's some uh, pretty powerful quotes out there uh, from Joseph Smith talking about when the elders of Israel began to set forth notions of obedience, you know, just requiring them to just be obedient. I know there's certainly, you know, that, that type of language out there. And so, you know, I, I, uh, you know, but, you know, taking a YouTube reference off of somebody that said something that heard something, I really don't want to comment, especially such an important, you know, reference. Uh, you know, I still want to believe that there is goodness, love, light, truth uh, with, you know, within our, our leadership that I can follow them, that, that uh, they will guide and direct in the, in the, in the right way. Um, I am extremely concerned about what is happening um, and, and the decisions that have been made and how, you know, they have followed the basically the exact same decisions as, you know, the, the Pappas and the, and the governments across the world and just how aligned they are and the exact same wordage and, that's being used in our, you know, in, in church, uh, you know, documents and, and, uh, and communication that, that concerns me. Anything else you want to add to this discussion? No, other than, you know, love the Lord, um, you know, be faithful, uh, you know, be strong and follow the spirit. The spirit will guide you. It'll direct you of what you should do. Uh, yeah. You know, we've had great promises that it'll give us the truth of all things mm -hmm. and uh, do not rely on the arm of flesh, rely on the spirit of the Lord. And Amen to that. That's what I say. Uh, you know, that's, that's what I'm going to do. And I believe doing that will get us through these times and uh, will bring us safely home to our heavenly father. Amen to that. Amen. I want to have you on the Canning Plus 7 podcast uh, sometime. We'll get that scheduled later. But in the meantime, I will talk to you later, folks. Okay. Thank you, Kevin. Thank you for listening to the LDS Life podcast. If you want to make a suggestion, comment, or to recommend a guest, email Kevin Williams at kevinw at ldslifepodcast.com. Be sure to check out his Facebook page, LDS Life Podcast.